Guess what? We are in season seven of the Iron Woman podcast. I'm Rosalie, and I really like Crave Jerky pink flavor. Also, it's raining tacos from out of the sky. Tacos, no need to ask why. Just open your mouth and close your eyes. It's raining tacos, yum, 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 and yum. It's like a dream. Also, we couldn't do this without our sponsors, Wahoo Fitness, After C Nutrition, and Smash Fest Queen. And now, the ladies you've been waiting for, Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Bye for now. I am sitting here in Montana looking out the window at a blizzard and I think you are in sunny Arizona. How is it going at camp? You know, camp, the final session wrapped up this morning because we record on Mondays and that's the last day for campers. And Haley, there were no blizzards in Tucson this weekend. We actually got super, super lucky with the camp weather and I have to say it was gorgeous. You needed a little bit of winter gear in the mornings because it does like the desert mornings do get quite chilly actually in kind of the forties. And I write in the forties all the time at home, but it's only that cold here because the sun's not like fully up yet. And so when the sun's on you and it's 40, it's actually pretty nice. But here when it's 40, it's because the sun's like behind a cloud or not quite over the mountains yet. And so it's pretty chilly in that first hour of the ride, but then, oh, the sun rises and then you just get all of that vitamin D and all of the lovely sunshine and riding and just bibs in a jersey all weekend was quite lovely. So I apologize, I guess, for the blizzard that you're facing, but we we made it worth a while for the like we didn't leave any sunshine to waste at camp this weekend. I'll say that. I love the snow, so I'm not going to say I'm too jealous and I love the trainer, but I I am really curious about this camp in January because I followed you a little bit on social media and I saw back to back hundred mile rides and that's not what I'm doing right now. How was that? So it's awesome. So this January camp was something we started last year and we loved it. It went really well. And so we're keeping it now and it's about just like base miles. So no one out here We had a couple athletes actually racing Ironman New Zealand. So they were probably the fittest of the bunch for in terms of like, you know, bike fitness and stuff. But the remainder of the people were kind of coming out of environments like from, you know, snowy East Coast weather, not a lot of time on the bike at all. And the goal of the day is just to like get time in the saddle and have some social riding and have some fun and like eat the sag food to get through it. But just, yeah, enjoy riding outside for a break because it was such a big break for people. And The key though, Haley, is to listen when your coaches say to keep the riding social because you don't want to be that person who gets a little excited at first and then, you know, blows themselves up in the first climb up Kit Peak that first day. So, you know, it's always, someone's always got to take the fall and that's always like a fun little lesson for the campers too. But it's just a lot of chit-chatting on the bike while we got used to sitting in the saddle for a long time. 
And what are the levels at this race? Is everyone super fast or can anyone join? I mean, or do you have to like know you? Is it special invitation only? It's open to everyone. So anyone who has an inkling to try a camp on Hillary's website, she has all of the information about the camps that her and her husband, Hillary, Hillary Biscay. Hillary Biscay yes. So, so HillaryBiscay.com is yes. that the website? Yes. So Ironman champion, Ultraman world champion, Hillary Biscay and her husband, Ironman champion, Mike Twelsick. So I coach under them at these camps and they kind of lead the way and it's all abilities. Anyone can come. Obviously a lot of our own athletes do come for the, you know, bonus of the in-person time, which is nice, but we get a lot of this time. We had about half the campers we had never met before. So it was really fun. A lot of new people to chat with on the bike, which made all of those miles go by really quick. And Haley, we had our oldest camper we've ever had. She was 62. She finished every single ride, every single activity. She finished the hundred by hundred today in the pool. She totally smashed it. It was really, really, really inspiring. And we had some, quite honestly, some other people I think who didn't quite know what they were in for. And it was so inspiring to watch them, you know, kind of show up to the rides and be like, so everyone's so nervous. They were like, I didn't even sleep last night because I'm so nervous about getting myself up this mountain. And then they do it like, you know, one step at a time, one pedal stroke at a time, whatever it is. It's just, we have all the time in the world while we're here. No one has anything else to do except for ride their bikes or swim or whatever activity we're doing. And so it's really cool to see what people can accomplish when they give themselves the time to like focus on that only. So, and Hillary is also the co-founder of Smashfest Queen, which is one of our podcast sponsors. So it is a women's apparel line and also one of my personal sponsors. And I saw a very cool picture that came out of the camp, which I actually went ahead and reposted on my Instagram, which was a group of people wearing the HC 18, the kit that I raced in last year. And it was a cool picture. So if anyone wants to check that out, check out my Instagram. It was, it was pretty neat. Was everyone always so color coordinated on this camp? One of the topics before pre-camp between like the returning campers who are often there, you know, year after year is always like, how are we coordinating outfits? What day are we wearing? What? And that is like always one of the best parts to see all the like matchingness and all the fun smash kits that do make their appearances. And it was kind of cool to see all the HC kits out there. That was for the Madeira Canyon ride, which Haley is actually my favorite ride of the camp. So I, I do that I've one never twice. Done usually. That ride. Yeah. I've I, never done that ride in Tucson. I've done Kit Peak and Mount Levin. Of course, those are, um, they're amazing, but I haven't done Madeira Canyon. Maybe next year I'm going to have to come and I'll have to figure out what to wear too. It is. Or I have it all figured out for me. I'll just get yeah. on the email list and you don't even have to think about what to wear. It's like, okay, this day, this day, it's like being on a team. It's pretty cool. Exactly. So it was a ton of fun, you know, a lot of activity, not a ton of sleep, but it's always worth it. And I'm, I'm excited to head back home now with some bike miles in me because I didn't have too many coming into this week either. So it's a really good jump start for me in that respect. But I don't know, Haley. I actually have a lot of my athletes. We must be getting snow kind of all over because a lot of people are asking me lately if they can try snow activities like snowshoeing or skate, skate, skate skiing or all of these things, you know, can we work these in? And so have you been able to enjoy the blizzard outside of swim, bike, run at all? I enjoy walking cowboy in the blizzard, walking the dog in the blizzard. That's fun. He loves the snow. That's about, I run outside in the snow. I don't really do, I've tried skate skiing once. It was really hard. And I know when we interviewed Keegan Randall last year, um, obviously 
cross country gold medalist. She challenged me this winter to try skate skiing three more times. And I haven't risen to that challenge yet, but I, I, there's still time. There's still time. It's just, I really, I enjoy just running in the snow. I mean, that gets me outside. And again, I love the trainer, you know, putting my bike on the Wahoo and just knocking out the hours on the trainer is something that I really, really enjoy. So I, I don't feel like I'm missing anything, but it's one of those things later in life. I think I might pick up especially skate skiing and Nordic skiing. That sounds really fun, but there's, there's always, it's good to have things to look forward to at this point in life. I'm like the trainer and some running and walking the dog. Well, I feel like I've been out of the news and social media circle, but I started to get back on today. And maybe you can explain this to me. Was there some kind of a moon situation going on this weekend? Was there a really cool moon for you in Montana? Have you seen this? What was this? We had a blizzard, so there was, we oh, couldn't yeah, see I the moon, but it was, it was the, like the super blood wolf moon. So it was is like, that was the a, real name? That's yeah, really the name. The blood really wolf moon. Real, yes. It's like a real name because um, I don't know that I don't have the exact details. I think it was like, a, it was a lunar eclipse and then it was red because of the position of the moon, you know, in relation to the earth. And so it appeared really big. I think it was really cool if you could see it, but we just had snow and clouds. So I missed it, but I think it's coming back in like 2022. So hopefully then it's clear skies. Maybe then Montana won't be in a blizzard. Well, that's about all I've caught up on so far. So you can see how my day's going, but lots of caffeine ahead of my time to get me through the, the travel home, I think. But Haley, what else do we have going on? We did a pretty fun interview for people this week. That's right. We have Holly Benner this week and Holly is a pro triathlete us based. She actually grew up swimming in Atlanta. So, um, near and dear to my heart, but she's fan for Agnes Scott college, which is in Atlanta and then moved on to Clemson university in South Carolina, where she was on the rowing team. And so she's going to talk to us about her progression in sport, where she went from swimming to rowing into triathlon. And she raced as an age grouper at a very high level for, I think seven or eight years before deciding to go pro. And she's going to tell us a little bit more about that decision, why she decided to go pro some kind of some of the highs and lows of racing pro and about, you know, her, her pro experience and what she has planned coming up for 2019. Wahoo is dedicated to the journey of every athlete from a sprint to Ironman. Wahoo is with you every pedal stroke, every stride and every trying moment with the commitment to make you better. As endurance athletes themselves, Wahoo provides an ecosystem of products, including Kicker Smart Trainers, Element Bike Computers, and Ticker Heart Rate Monitors to provide exactly what you need to reach the finish line and smash your training goals. Hi, Holly. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Holly, you and I got to spend some quality time together waiting for drug testing after <laughs> Ironman 70.3 Indian Wells this past December. It's it's quality time, right? Sitting memories. there waiting. Yes, yes, great memories. But somehow while we were chatting, we got on the topic of your path to professional triathlon, which I found super interesting. So you were a collegiate swimmer at Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia, before heading to grad school at Clemson University. And at Clemson, you were actually on the rowing team. And from what I've heard, you were a very accomplished rower and even an Olympic hopeful. So what made you decide to take up rowing at Clemson? And how did you get so good so fast? <laughs> That's a good question. So rowing, um, I went growing up as a swimmer, you know, burnout is, is very real. 
So after college, and I went to a D3 school because they don't give athletic scholarships. So I didn't want that pressure of having to perform athletically, uh, you know, when I'm focused on my academics. So when I went to grad school, I uh, went to something called the Rec Fest, the Recreational Festival. And I literally signed up for like 12 intramural clubs. And honestly, the crew team, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but they had really awesome sweatshirts and I really wanted one. So I signed up for the club and a whole bunch of others. And they were the first to respond back with an email. And it was like, be at the boathouse from this time to this time. This is our workout. It's very structured right up my alley. So I showed up and uh, this is that the, the club team. And I was really, really bad so bad that the coaches who were also grad students were like just straight up making fun of me. And that really sparked the fire. Like, you know, I've got to see what I can do with this. So uh, I was just rowing with the crew team and I think I did pretty well in the women's NCAA boathouse was literally right next door. And they invited me uh, to walk on and just try out. So I had one semester left of NCAA eligibility at this point, because I was an NCAA swimmer at Agna Scott, but I didn't compete all four years. I only competed three. So I actually had some eligibility left in graduate school. So I walked onto the women's NCAA team and my first ERG test, which is like the rower indoors, it's a 2000 meter timed test. You just go as fast as you can complete the distance. And I broke the eight year standing novice novice record uh, of the boathouse. And, um, instantly made like 52 enemies. Like most of those girls hated my guts, like didn't even talk to me. Really, it was awful. But a few girls did. And we ended up living together coincidentally. But um, I just ended up being really powerful on the erg and had to kind of backpedal my way into learning the technique on the water. Rowing is a highly, highly technique oriented sport, a lot like swimming. So that kind of opened up the door for me uh, to this new sport I literally had no knowledge about at all. So Holly, my knowledge of rowing comes from actually like quite a different story because when I went to the Naval Academy, they make you take a erg test and oh yeah, I did not break it. I didn't come close to breaking any records. I failed miserably and they were like, we definitely don't want you. <laughs> and then I've also read Boys on the Boat. So I have that knowledge behind me, but Regardless, I have a strong sense that team dynamics play a major role in the success of a boat. So can you talk about what it was like to be part of that dynamic versus now the solo aspect of racing triathlon and like what lessons have come in handy from rowing? I imagine that kind of having that power as a skill and then having to go backwards maybe came in handy as you were learning some things with triathlon. Yeah, that's a great question, too, because coming from swimming, which is even though you're on a team, it's very individual, um, except if you're in a relay. And then to go into rowing, which is individual in certain uh, forms, like the single skull, it's just you. But then you can row as a pair, you can row as a quad, you can row as an eight. So uh, team dynamics, I don't want to say that was new to me, but it was definitely something different and something that I really enjoyed learning. Um, And it was also kind of interesting because I was a graduate student. And I was rowing with undergrad uh, girls. So I was a novice, though. So I was literally four to five years older than other novice athletes on the team. So it was this this kind of like interesting like bridge scenario where I was learning like the newbies, but I was older. 
so very interesting. And I'm not sure the coaches were <laughs> really well-versed with how to handle that either. I think I was just kind of an anomaly at, on the team at the time. But I loved rowing with other people and being able to work together and really move the boat. When the boat moves, I mean, it makes a sound, it makes a rhythm. You see the the progress and the sum is, you know, more than the uh, individual parts. So that was really nice. But then, you know, slingshot back the opposite way to triathlon where every man for themselves. Yeah. But how did this happen? Like how far did you get in your rowing career? And then when did you make the switch to triathlon and what prompted that switch? Yeah. So I was actually at Clemson for a PhD in industrial organizational psychology, which is a $25,000 word for personnel psychology. It's the study of people at work. And I started rowing and my first summer um, at graduate school, I was writing my master's thesis and one of the girls on the team said, hey, you know, there's these rowing camps, you should apply to one. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll see what, see what happens. So I applied to a few and uh, got into three Olympic development camps across the country and just decided to go to Vesper in Philadelphia because I had always wanted to go to Philadelphia so I just put everything in my two-door Saturn and moved 800 miles up the coast for the summertime. And so I was rowing um, in this Olympic development program for Vesper Boathouse on the Schuylkill River in Philly and writing my master's thesis. So that's what I did for the summer. And I absolutely fell in love with the river. I fell in love with Philly, kind of very hard city, very different than southern cities, way different than Atlanta and Clemson. But I fell in love with this hard work, this tenacity that rowing is. I mean, there's no other sport like it. So I went back to Clemson. I switched from a PhD to a master's. Um, so I had to actually overload course credits at that time. Uh, graduated with my master's, published my master's thesis in two languages, put everything back in my car and, and moved permanently up uh, to Philadelphia without knowing anybody just to try to make the 2012 Olympic team. Wow. And, and so like, did, did you make it? I mean, I think I know the answer, but like what happened, you know, after that? Yeah. So, um, I was wrong at the elite level. It was about 20 hours a week that we were training. I was around 23, 24 at the time. I was actually working as an adjunct professor at the Philadelphia university and then rowing 6am, 6pm every day and really just pouring my heart and soul into it. But, you know, it was a very cutthroat environment because everybody that I was around at the boathouse, everybody was trying to get an Olympic berth. So the national team is headquartered in Princeton, or, uh, Princeton, New Jersey, very close to Philadelphia. So Philly, boathouse row, iconic in rowing, um, is a lily pad to try to get Olympic exposure, national team exposure. So it was a very cutthroat, I would say a very abrasive environment in the boathouse. And um, I didn't feel like I really developed as a rower. I don't feel like my potential was uncovered by the time I fell out of love with the sport. So this was about three and a half to four years. You know, I had friends around me and, and uh, great people. And they actually said, hey, you know, you are a swimmer. You know, rowers make great cyclists. You should do a triathlon. And I was like, oh, yeah, maybe, maybe I should. So uh, one of my last regattas was the Canadian Henley. It's a funny race because they only award first, like your first or your last. And uh, it's a very competitive race in North America. And uh, I, my two boats won two gold medals there. That was my last regatta. I went home 
Saturday, found a triathlon online, signed up and raced on Sunday and never really looked back. Got a $100 bike off Craigslist. It was steel with down tube shifters and really honestly didn't know a damn thing. I just knew that I needed to do something else, like that my heart was shifting away from rowing and I needed to do something else. So it seems like once you begin to have that realization, then everything goes into fast forward for you because once you change directions, it seems like your rise through the age group ranks of triathlon was probably nearly as fast as what it was with rowing. And so as early as 2009, you were consistently on age group podiums. You logged a fourth place finish in the 25-29 age group at the 2011 70.3 World Championships in Las Vegas. And that was a hot race. <laughs> I do. That was a fun one, though, oh, when it was in Vegas. I liked that. But even with so much age group success then, it wasn't until 2017 that you decided to race as a pro. So mm-hmm. what made you take that leap then from age group into the professional ranks at that point? Yeah, that, you know, getting enough confidence to race as a pro was such a journey for me. I mean, I really didn't know why I I kind of put pro athletes on this pedestal and I didn't associate with any of the qualities that I gave other professionals. I thought that they were just so much better and and so special and had like these unique qualities and capabilities that I didn't see in myself. And, uh, it really took me a long time and to get to the point where I was basically like, I'm either going to race pro or I'm going to stop the sport completely because I felt like I had checked all the boxes, done all the things and accomplished everything that I wanted to in the sport. And it was either like, it's this next step or it's nothing. It's going to be something else. Kind of like how I got to the end point with, with rowing. And, um, that was a really long grind for me to just basically be like, you know what? I'm, I don't feel ready. I'm never going to feel ready. Like this feeling of not being ready is, isn't going away. It's not changing year after year after year. I still don't feel ready. So screw it. I'm just going to do it. But now that you have two full seasons of racing pro under your belt, quite a few top five finishes, a podium at Eagle man last summer. What do you think about racing pro versus racing as an age grouper? And do you have any tips for new pros? Yeah. So, um, I don't know what I was so scared of. I honestly don't know why I waited for so long because I love racing at, on the professional level. All of the other women that I've met have been so awesome, so gracious. I don't know why I made it out to be some something else than what it is in reality. And, you know, there's some luxury, some little luxuries racing a pro that you don't have as a, as an age grouper starting earlier, you know, if you're racing midsummer races, it can be 10 degrees difference on the run. If you're starting way back, I mean, that matters. You don't have to swim over hundreds of bodies in the water. That matters. Just having a little bit more of a clear course. If that's your preference, if you know how to race to your own race and stay focused on you, then I think there's a lot of advantages that come from racing professionally. So yeah, I hope that answers the question. And last August after Steelhead, which was kind of, it sounds like you kind of wrapped up your season there and then kind of started with 2019. You know, we, we know you raced again after that in the year, but that mm-hmm. was kind of like the, the end of the 2018 season kind of in your head, it seems like. And you posted a race report on your Facebook, which had a huge element of vulnerability and honesty in it. And in it, you said that you had been under a tremendous amount of pressure 
or of stress over the past few months and have dealt with depression paired with crippling anxiety, panic attacks, insomnia, and even nosebleeds. Three weeks ago, you weren't even sure if you would make it to the start line. You've also been open in other interviews about your struggle with depression from an early age. Can you talk a little bit about how sport has helped you as you are dealing with depression in your life? Yeah, and you can kind of get a sense of like that depression with why it took me so long to feel enough confidence to get to to race pro. I, I think that in some circumstances, confidence can be linked with feelings of depression or inadequacy. Sport has helped my depression because a lot of times, you know, feelings are just feelings. Emotions are, are just emotions. They're not real. And sometimes if you just get your body in motion and get your body moving, it clicks off the thinking in a, in a sense where you, it's not so much like flipping a light switch, but if you just put your body in motion and start breathing, start getting blood moving, feelings sometimes become less important. You realize that you're capable of doing something else and, you know, kind of getting out of your own way. At least that's my method of coping. Everybody has different coping method, uh, mechanisms, but for me, sport has allowed me to love my body when I didn't think it was lovable, has allowed me to see that I'm able and capable of doing something that I think is pretty remarkable. And it's allowed me to have a tool that's a healthy coping mechanism that allows me to really tap into what's meaningful to me, uh, like a moving meditation. Church of the Sunday long run. Yeah, Holly, I'm just so, I mean, you say all this and we mentioned Steelhead and you were fourth at Steelhead. And this post came just a couple months after your first pro podium at Eagle Man. So do you have any like specific ways that you're able to compartmentalize? How are you able to be, you know, having these horrible feelings, but still able to perform so well? I mean, as much as I like to compartmentalize things, I mean, I'm in my own head during a race. And sometimes if I'm thinking terrible things, the race goes that same direction. So do you have any suggestions or are you able to just, you know, keep everything separate? I mean, to a big degree, I would say I do compartmentalize a lot and that can be, that's a helpful strategy for me to implement. But a lot of times, again, like the, those feelings, like the, the stress that I mentioned in that post was specifically related to a lot of work stress that I was dealing with. And so sport can be in a really nice balance to that for me to kind of have something else that I feel successful in, that I feel qualified to do. But, you know, it, it's funny, again, like those feelings sometimes get in your own way. Like once you start going in motion and start actually being in the race, you know, getting to the start line is one thing, but then once you start moving, once the race starts, things can really change. And to not, to let those previous feelings be passed, to not ruminate, to just let your body do what it's able, able and capable of doing and to not let your feelings or emotions or expectations hold you back. And I'm not saying it's easy. It's a practice just like everything else. But I mean, it's true. A lot of times we could be our, our biggest critic, our own worst enemy and be what holds us back more than anything. One thing I think people struggle with in the same realm is that you compartmentalize, you have something else in your life that's bringing you stress. And then you do, you have triathlon or another sport that's really helpful and is like a good outlet like this, right? But then, you know, you come off of a high of a race where, like, you've been doing really well. But then do you have any, like, 
I guess, tips or kind of ways that you would transition almost the other way than like back because Monday morning you probably had to go back to work and back to these places that were causing you stress, you know? So like, how did you like go the other direction and manage to not have it be like, you know, two separate in a way? Like, were you able to then bring those feelings into your work life to make that a little bit of a better place for you? Yeah, no, that's a good question because I, when I was working in like corporate America in an office building, you know, I'd have a race, I'd travel, you know, sometimes tra- driving back 10 hours, hours after finishing a 70.3 and people at work being like, oh, did you have a marathon? How was that marathon? And, you know, you can't educate <laughs> every person that's just simply trying to give you some goodwill. But yeah, that dyad of almost having that feeling that you're living two different lives or two different personalities uh, can be something that's really interesting to maneuver around. And, you know, for me, as I've gotten older and I think more comfortable with myself, hence being able to actually talk about depression and talk about anxiety and open up about it, I've really been able to embrace that this is just a part of who I am and talk about it more openly. And if people understand, they understand. And if they don't, then they don't. And it's not up to me to try to make them understand. But I've gotten to a place where I'm going to talk about, you know, my impressions and my values and my opinions, because that's, that's the life that I'm living. What about on kind of the flip side, if, you know, sport is bringing you so much joy, what about kind of what you alluded to earlier, like a burnout, or if your training and racing aren't going well, is that when it's time to make a change. I mean, you mentioned kind of feeling that way, I guess, when you decided to jump into the pro ranks. And is that something you would encourage people to do? Uh, meaning when you're feeling burnt yeah, out? Yeah. Or like if the thing that is giving you the release, the sport, if it's not going well, like how do you keep yourself mentally healthy, even if, you know, this thing you love isn't necessarily bringing you a lot of joy, you know, even like poor racing or something like that? Like, is, are there any, do you have any suggestions for people on how they can kind of, you know, stay mentally healthy, even if they aren't racing or training well? Yeah. So I think if you truly love something, you know it, you know, regardless of expectations, outcomes, results, if you really love something, you know it, you can actually take a break and step away from it. And if you love it, you'll go back to it. So I think grace and and patience and even some time is a really good barometer of that. And you know what? People do change. Preferences and how our love, what we are pulled to in life, change. So again, if you give yourself grace and permission to follow your heart and really think critically about how you're spending your time, is it meaningful to you? Does it bring you joy? Is it enriching? Is it helping you be the person that you want to be in life? That's meaningful. And if it's something else than what you're currently spending your time doing, then you owe it to yourself to explore that avenue. You know, growing up as a swimmer, I identified so heavily as a swimmer because I started doing doubles in middle school, like sixth grade, going to the pool before. That's what you do when you're an age group swimmer. You swim an incessant, like a crazy amount of time in the water. And so when I went to high school, like I was a swimmer. What do you do? I'm a swimmer. Um, and then once I got really burnt out, <laughs> um, as swimmers do, it's like, holy shit, like, what am I now, now that I'm not a swimmer? And honestly, going to a different sport, being rowing, really was a great lesson that like, hey, I can reinvent myself. I'm not just a swimmer. I can do something else. And that actually made it easier for me to switch sports again 
um, to triathlon because I'd already done it before. And I know it sounds kind of petty because like, we're just talking about sports and like our hobbies, but it was really meaningful. Like, you know, you can do something sport as a tool, triathlon as a tool to, to go on a journey, learn more about yourself, enrich yourself. And when that tool stops giving you what it needs, what you need from it, then you can shift to something else. And I think people in general have a really hard time with that choice and that option and where to go next if they are at a hard place. We definitely appreciate you sharing your kind of matured opinion as the, from what you've learned here, because I think that is very valuable to the listener. So I want to switch gears a little bit and kind of pick your brain for a second, because we found out that you actually studied psychology while at Clemson. And so you co-authored, we think, a paper on sleep deprivation. Yeah. So oh my this might you be like that. outside the scope of your study <laughs> here. But if you have any tips on how we should be maximizing sleep <laughs> for athletic performance, I think everyone would love to hear any insight that you have. Oh, sleep is so important. Oh my gosh. I hate this like American mentality of like, oh, I only got five hours of sleep and I work 70 hours a week. And, you know, I can I do all this stuff with, with no sleep and I'm in my cubicle all the time. Like what, what kind of crap is that? Like who is being like, yeah, I want to live that life says no one. So, I mean, we worked on a, a grant with NASA for sleep deprivation and correlated it to uh, different levels of blood alcohol concentration, uh, basically showing your mental, your cognitive decrements over sustained operations, which means how long you're awake. So basically, you know, sleep hygiene is really important. Everybody's kind of heard like if, if you're sleep deprived, it's like being drunk. And yes, it is like being drunk if you're sleep deprived. So as an athlete, it's pretty easy to see how that can really impact your performance because we're not training for fitness or for working out. We're, we're training. So that's that's different. You're doing it with an intention of performance improvement. So if you have a bad night's sleep for whatever reason, maybe it's chronic or just happenstance and you wake up and you're like, wow, I'm really tired. Like, am I actually tired or, 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 oh, okay. It's because I got four hours of sleep last night. It might be the best call to postpone or skip your morning swim session that day. If your focus is on performance improvement, Again, like no one, I always like to say, no one wins practice. Like you're not going to get an award for, you know, cranking out your work day on four to five hours of sleep, especially uh, chronically. So I mean, like sleep hygiene, again, going back to that, having it be a dark room, having it be cold, like, you know, in the sixties, really good for sleep quality, blackout curtains, if you can, I don't even have a lamp in my bedroom. So, I, I mean, getting getting into a habit, getting into a rhythm, uh, having it be like tea before you go to bed or, or whatever it is, no smartphone, no TV, reading, um, anything that'll help you get, I think, eight to nine hours of sleep a night. Seven, eh, not really that great. Eight, pretty good. I think if you're an athlete and you're really looking for performance, nine hours is amazing. You'll see a huge performance improvement going from eight to nine hours a night. Holly, I wish I had met you several years ago, <laughs> but um, I can take me a long time to realize this, but what do you do for your day job? You've mentioned it a couple of times. What are you doing right now? 
So I work a uh, contract as a for the Department of Defense, actually mainly with the Navy. So I develop, uh, I work as an instructional designer is the title, but I develop courseware and curriculum for the Surface Warfare Officer School to teach naval sailors how to do their job. So you're training outside of a normal work week then, in addition to? Well, yeah, and when I say training, I mean like education. So like Yeah, no, no, I'm talking about your, or your triathlon training. They, your pro, you know, all of your pro results, you've done all that training while still maintaining a full-time, really, I mean, big job. Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just making sure I had that clear so everyone knows. <laughs> Um, so we'll move back to sports now, but we've talked a little bit about your, you know, diverse athletic history in swimming and rowing and now triathlon, but you've also run a few trail ultra marathons and you've raced in some swim run events. So I've never done a swim run event, but oh, I've you should. A- I know I need to- <laughs> so can you tell us what a swim run event is, where you've raced and any tips for our listeners or, or maybe a co-host that might be thinking about jumping <laughs> into a swim run event in the near future. Swim running is so much fun. I, I mean, the biggest, uh, unique quality about it is that it's team. So, uh, you have a partner, either same gender or a co-ed mixed team, And you're typically tethered together by a 10 meter cord to your waist at all times. So it's really this teamwork adage working together that, again, is very different than what we experience in triathlon. And every venue is unique unto itself. So typically you would swim to an island, run across it, swim to an island, run across it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So depending on the geography of where the race is located, you might be swimming 10 times and running five. You might be swimming seven times and running 20. So, and the durations of each swim and run vary accordingly. So it's not metered. So it's very dynamic. You know, you could be in fresh water. You could be in um, open water, ocean water. Um, You could be swimming in a river. You could be running, you know, in basically needing navigational skills, Alyssa, you might be (laughs) handy with that and, uh, or just over sand dunes, uh, anything that you swim with, you have to carry when you run anything you run with, you have to carry when you swim. So you're swimming in your shoes. Yep. And running in a wetsuit and that's fine. Yeah. I mean, you'd be surprised. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to have to try one someday. I, I, they do kind of look fun. And there are a lot of the times they're in kind of cold water, right? Yeah. And the, sw- uh, the wetsuits that they make specifically for swim run zip in the front. So you can actually unzip when you're running. So you can have a little bit more ventilation and the wetsuit material is a little bit more stretchy where it needs to be like on the inner thighs, uh, upper body. So it's not quite, quite as rigid as a typical wetsuit that you get for a triathlon, open water swimming. And what about for people who might be thinking about who their partner could be? Do you find it's best? I mean, obviously, if you can be like equal at both swimming and running, that's like ideal, right? But would you say you'd rather have someone as your partner that you're a faster swimmer than, but like a slower runner than, or they can out swim you, but you can outrun them? Like, would you rather pick combo? Alyssa or me? <laughs> <laughs> so that's a really good I question. Love trail running, but <laughs> so it really depends on you have to have a portion of the race where you can kind of gain your strength back, where you can have a little respite. So 
uh, my one swim run partner, Mary Kay, is a fish. She's like an amazing swimmer, so fast, but um, kind of struggles running a little bit. But we would get in the water, and she's so fast, we would blow by teams, but she wouldn't be working that hard. So actually, the swim portion for her was her time to kind of rest and relax and let her heart rate come down. And then we would run, you know, she'd be kind of maxing out. Uh, but then again, she'd have that recovery bit in the water. So I would say if there's mismatch in abilities for sport, having one where if somebody's a really good runner, they're going to be able to run better and kind of use that as their recovery portion and then work really hard in the swim. So as long as that's kind of clear, I think that's the best case, unless you're both like hammer, diesel, you know, pedal to the metal, go, which is, I think, just harder to find in a partner. Yeah, that doesn't cool. seem, seem as fun to me. It seems more fun to like ha- have a shared struggle at some point, right? For the bonding aspect. <laughs> but Holly, so we are animal lovers here on the Iron Women podcast, but admittedly, we usually favor dogs since Haley and I both have dogs. <laughs> so you might actually be the first cat person we've chatted with, but can you make no a way. good argument for cats as great pets for endurance sports athletes? Um, I mean, they're basically like warm-blooded stuffed animals. You can leave for days and just pile up the food and water. Super helpful if you have family or friends close by to check on them. Yeah, so they're low maintenance, and they're just nice little like space heaters. They sit on you and keep you warm. Yeah, I just love cats. I mean, I've had them. I, I would love a dog, but it seems like that's such a big commitment. And I would want like a fenced-in yard. And I would hate it if I had a kennel a dog. So I'm not there yet. I mean, I absolutely, I love all animals, love dogs, but uh, cats are just really low maintenance. So Holly, we want to know where we can follow you this year in 2019. Do you have your race schedule set up? I know you're usually a fixture on the North American 70.3 scene. Are we going to see you on an Ironman start line in 2019 or have you made your plans yet? I've made some plans through the first couple months. I'm thinking maybe Campeche. Or oh. Peru, Oceanside. Uh, I've never done St. Anthony's. I want to do St. Anthony's and then Wildflower for sure. Not, I'm tentative on Chattanooga um, and then definitely Eagle Man before kind of assessing anything after July or June. Cool. Well, that's a lot of opportunities for our listeners to follow you. And we will you have you send us your social media handles and everything. We'll put that in the show notes for everyone to find you as well. But thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Great. Thank you. Haley Holly had some interesting sleep tips for us. And I love talking about sleep temperature. So what is your ideal sleep temperature that you have? I think my ideal temperature is pretty cold. I can sleep with my window open even when it's below zero outside, although it prob- that might be a little too cold. I don't know. I-, I wish I could get my room colder. That is one of the problems with my apartment or downsides of my apartment, honestly, is that sometimes I can't get my room cold enough just because you, know, you don't want your pipes to burst. <laughs> So you go, you go really cold. I'm like, I teeter this line at like, I would love it to be in the low sixties, but if it's colder than 66 in the air, I'll never get out of bed because I'll lay in bed under the covers thinking of how cold it's going to be when I step outside the covers. And so that will prolong me from getting like jumping out of bed and getting coffee going and getting everything going. So I usually have to go with 66 or 68, even though like, I think I'd prefer it lower, but it's like that tipping point of what'll actually like help me get up in the morning too. I think the lowest my thermostat will go is like 60. 
And so I just keep it at that most of the time. And except for like occasional days when I feel cold, but that doesn't happen very often. Usually that's if I go for a run and I get really warm and then I come back in and I get cold. But I think the sleep hygiene, you know, it is a very, very interesting you know, area of study. And it is something that we've learned. And where she said she doesn't even have a lamp in her bedroom. I don't know if I could do that. And I am guilty of having like my phone in my bedroom and I've tried, I've tried to get it out of there, but it's a work in progress. Always a work in progress, Haley, but it is sleep super important at the end of the day. So little things at a time will make a big difference, I'm sure. But thanks again to Holly for sharing her story. We really enjoyed that. And all of her social media and ways to follow her will be in the show notes. And in case you guys didn't notice, we didn't have any mailbag questions this week. So please feel free to always send in mailbag questions to Haley and I at ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, we love answering your questions. Also, if you can leave us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, that helps us a ton as we grow and helps other people find us and they really do matter. So thank you if you already have. And if you haven't, please, please, please do it. And coming up in the next couple of weeks, we will be having some new sponsor opportunity Uh, or sponsors coming on board. So that's opportunities for you to find more discount codes for the products that we love and are using. And also an exciting contest is coming for February. So keep listening in the next few weeks. We will tell you more about that. But until then, Haley, I'll talk to you next week. Bye, Alyssa. This is a special song. It's me and my friend's song that we made ourselves. This song is called Here I Am, Get Ready for the Chorus. I am here, now you cannot take me. I will stand up this whole entire time. I am strong, now you cannot beat me. I will stand up because I am here. The Iron Woman Podcast is a live, feisty media production. Our hosts are Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chara, and our awesome editors, Aaron Hamilton. Also, we couldn't do this without our sponsors, Wahoo Fitness, FTC Nutrition, and Smash Fest Queen. Oh.